focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our Friday reporters, Kwon Soa and Son Bogyeon. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening. All right, uh, we actually have a lot of things happening in the past uh, 24 hours or so, but uh, we're going to start things off on the diplomatic front. South Korea, the United States, and Japan having discussed response measures against North Korea. Should it conduct a seventh nuclear test. Now, we've been talking about uh, the prospects and the possibility of North Korea test firing their seventh nuclear test for months now. Uh, fortunately, it hasn't happened, uh, but who knows what's going to happen. Uh, well, nevertheless, we had those uh, officials discuss that. Uh, so, uh, fill us in on the details of this meeting. Sure. South Korea's top security advisor Kim Song-han and his U.S. and Japanese counterparts Jake Sullivan and Takeo Akiba discussed what to do when North Korea does indeed conduct a seventh nuclear test, as is being feared for some months now. The three met for trilateral talks in Hawaii, Honolulu on Thursday, after which Seoul's National Security Advisor Kim told reporters that South Korea, the U.S. and Japan agreed to have a strong joint response within the international community should North Korea conduct a seventh nuclear test. Adding that the response will definitely be different from any measures taken before. Uh, that means the North should not think of it as just another response to a nuclear test, just like after the former six tests it conducted. Kim said that the three have discussed measures quite in detail, but said it's inappropriate to reveal those. Mm. Obviously, we don't want North Korea right, to hear right, those right. measures. Uh, the three sides vowed to maximize cooperation in making Pyongyang realize its nuclear test was a wrong decision. I mean, if it does conduct a seventh one, um, the officials also touched upon President Yoon Seo-gyeol's so-called audacious proposal, the offer President Yoon made last month during a speech which involves aid projects for the North in turn for commitment to denuclearization. According to Kim, Washington and Tokyo in general expressed support for Seoul's plan, uh, which is aimed at bringing North Korea back to dialogue, and uh, that the three countries agreed to work closely to make the North accept the proposal. Extended deterrence against North Korea was also discussed. South Korea and the U.S. are expected to talk about concrete measures to extend deterrence during an EDSCG meeting around mid-September. The potential need of uh, trilateral deterrence together with Japan has also been mentioned. Kim Sullivan and Akiba uh, reportedly also agreed on joint efforts against global supply chain issues. And during a bilateral meeting between Kim and Sullivan, Kim delivered South Korean businesses concern about the U.S.'s recent Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act. Sullivan, according to Kim, agreed uh, to make the White House National Security Council review those concerns. And I think uh, about this, Pugyang is going to talk more. Yeah, uh, but uh, again, I mean, we've been talking about this for months now, whether or not North Korea was going to be conducting a uh, fourth, uh, seventh nuclear test that hasn't come out. I mean, we had uh, different speculations like uh, North Korea is going to test, uh, you know, test it come uh, 4th of July, Independence Day. This was back in July. Uh, are they going to do this after Biden visits uh, South Korea after Afterwards, and then, you know, we knew that that was going to be almost a sign of war, so it didn't happen. But again, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's better to reveal what was discussed because then it's my, it might deter North Korea from actually, mm -hmm. uh, you know, testing their seventh nuclear test. But 
I mean, the consensus is, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if, if North Korea does end up uh, testing their nuclear weapons, that it's going to be just more sanctions put in place, uh, U.S. sanctions and then uh, potentially U.N. Security Council uh, resolutions on uh, North Korea further. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're, we're hoping that it's not the case. But I am a little bit concerned because they're to, continuously pushing forward this uh, audacious initiative, which, I mean, North Korea has continuously, oh, I shouldn't say continuously, has basically set their foot down and said, look, we're not going to accept it. So, I mean, unless there's a better option in place, we'll have to find out. Uh, just a follow-up from yesterday's uh, issue here. The National Assembly passing a resolution expressing concerns regarding the U.S. Inflation Act. Uh, Bo Kyung, fill us in on this. Sure. So the National Assembly on Thursday passed a resolution expressing concerns over the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, that excludes electric vehicles assembled outside North Korea from tax incentives. Electric vehicles produced within North America can receive tax subsidies of up to $7,500 U.S. dollars. The resolution highlights the discriminatory nature of the law and calls for the Korean government to actively respond to the issue. A majority of 254 of 261 lawmakers who attended the plenary meeting voted in favor of it. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where, like, it doesn't matter which party you're from. I mean, it obviously looks bad for South Korea. And, uh, you know, we've seen the South Korean government express uh, this their discontent over uh, the passing of the IRA. Uh, which is ultimately going to force many of these South Korean companies to create uh, plants in the United States so that, you know, the United States can almost monopolize all the uh, the EV vehicles, right, from many different countries that are, are building it. But uh, let's talk about this Inflation Reduction Act, not to mention the Chips and Science Act. Uh, this emerging as a very uncomfortable issue for the Seoul-Washington Alliance. I've said this earlier this week, uh, these... The, uh, the UN administration has been really pushing to improve ties with Washington. But on the flip side, Washington is pulling all this thing, which is almost kind of forcing them to, uh, I guess, you know, stray apart uh, because of all these acts right now. But uh, U.S. President Joe Biden keeps on stressing the U.S.'s own manufacturing of electric vehicles. Uh, so uh, tell us more about this. Yes, uh, on Thursday, uh, local time, U.S. President Joe Biden reiterated the production of electric cars in the U.S. in a statement on Micron Technologies' investment in a new semiconductor plant. Calling it another big win for America, Biden was apparently referring to Micron's plan to construct a $15 billion chip fabrication plant in Idaho. He mentioned that this week, First Solar, Toyota, Honda and Corning made major announcements of new investments and jobs, which he added were all a direct result of his economic plan. Biden also said in the future, the U.S. will make EVs, chips, fiber optics and other critical components with an aim to have an economy, quote, built from the bottom up and middle out. Uh, Micron Technologies plan is to invest in the new plant through the end of the decade, which will be the first new memory manufacturing fab built in the U.S. in more than two decades. It's estimated to create some 17,000 new jobs in the U.S. by the end of 2032. Oh, so boy. Good for the U.S., but not good for yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? And that's the thing that's upsetting uh, all like some of the countries that are involved is like you wrote this act. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act, and then you basically named all these countries without really consulting them, and so like it really impacts the South Korean EV market. And yeah, it's a win for the United States, and it's almost. 
I hate to say it's almost like bullying, uh, but it's forcing everyone to, you know, build plants in the United States. Because even though the, because right, the IRA is basically like, we're only going to be able to use uh, electric vehicles that are built within the United States, batteries that are built within the United States. But it's okay if you're like energy, uh, LG Energy Solution or Hyundai or Kia, and you build it inside the United States where we can watch everything. And uh, we, you have to basically give that to us and we create jobs and things like that. And then, mm. uh, and so it's it's kind of upsetting to be honest with you. Uh, in the meantime, I mean, the, the yeah, word, uh, you you mentioned the word bullying, right? I think many Korean um, business people and also uh, officials are calling it betrayal right now. Also, in many, betrayal is yes. another word mm. that's coming out because I mentioned this, right? The mm. UN administration has been working very hard to try to improve ties with the United mm. States, uh, even at times kind of risking their relations with China. And I'm going, how much further can South Korea continue to take this in? Because right. On the flip side, China is kind of like, hey, uh, you know, let's hold meetings. Uh, we're, we're celebrating our 30th <laughs> yeah. uh, year of establishing our bilateral ties. Uh, we're going to be sending over our third highest official. I mean, we can't bring Xi Jinping just yet, but we'll mm. send uh, the vice president to the inauguration ceremony. We'll, we'll send. I, it's, I mean, you're, you're pushing us away is uh, what it looks like. Uh, Yang Gurum sending a message here says Korea is like a pushover. And that's the unfortunate thing. It almost sounds like it. Uh, will the South Korean government respond to all this? Because the Chip 4 alliance is the other thing where, they, you know, the U.S. kind of say, look, look, this is an alliance that we're going to make. And we want you guys to join here without kind of consulting them. Uh, really unfortunate. In the meantime, South Korea's vice defense minister expressing intent to resolve conflict over Japan's flyby. This was back in 19, uh, 2018. Uh, let's get the details of this, Pogyang. Sure. So this conflict happened back in December 2018 when a South Korean Navy destroyer called Kwangeto Tewangham aimed a fire control radar at a Japanese patrol aircraft. According to Japan's defense ministry, Seoul denied it back then and alleged that the Japanese plane deliberately flew at low altitudes near the South Korean naval ship. In an interview with the Japanese Mainichi Shimbun on Friday, Vice Defense Minister Shin Bomchar said, although the government's official stance is that the vessel did not lock its fire control radar on the plane, Seoul is willing to seek a comprehensive resolution to mend ties with its Japanese counterpart. Regarding media reports that Seoul had drawn up a guideline in 2019, which is a year after 2018, on its response to Japanese patrol aircraft, Shin said that additional steps against Tokyo had been taken at that time and, however, questioned the appropriateness of the former Moon Jae-in administration's measures. Bilateral defense cooperation has largely been stalled since Tokyo accused the Gwangeto the Great Destroyer of radar lock-on, which Seoul back then has refuted, saying that the warship was on a rescue mission to save a North Korean vessel. When asked about whether the South Korean Navy will attend the Japanese International Fleet Review, scheduled to be held this November, Shin said a decision has yet to be made taking into account past practices. Yeah, and so this was a discussion we had yesterday on the show when we connected with our uh, Japanese correspondent. What she was saying is, well, like the South Korean side are saying, look, we can't be a part of Japan's fleet review because they used the rising sun flag, right? And then come on now. I mean, you know, that is a flag that has very, very negative uh, historical background for us, especially here in South Korea, whereas the Japanese citizens are going... 
uh, we shouldn't invite South Korea to the fleet review because we still have resolved this very issue of the, the radar lock-on, right? And so there's a lot of back and forth here. Well, we'll have to see what happens uh, later on. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it more as we inch closer and closer to November. Uh, also, uh, earlier we talked about North Korea in regards to its uh, nuclear program. This time, let's talk about humanitarian issue. Uh, as uh, Unification Minister Kwon Young-sae met with the UN Special Rapporteur for North Korean Human Rights. She was here for uh, several days here in Seoul. Uh, so what, tell us uh, what the two discussed. Yes, uh, Elizabeth Salmon is the new Special Rapporteur for North Korea's Human Rights at the UN. Uh, she made a visit to Seoul and met with Seoul's Unification Minister this morning at the Seoul government complex to share opinions on North Korea's humanitarian issues. During the meeting, Minister Kwon said that peace on the Korean peninsula and improvement in inter-Korean ties is necessary for both citizens of the North and South to live a decent human life. He said that the Yoon Seok-yeol administration vows to strive for the improvement of the human rights situation of North Koreans just as much as its efforts to make North Korea abandon its nuclear program and enhance inter-Korean relations. He also said that there are two ways in approaching North Korea's humanitarian issues, with one uh, being making those responsible for uh, making the human rights situation for North Koreans worse accountable for that, and the other one being a substantial improvement of the human rights of North Korean citizens itself. Kwon also expressed regrets toward uh, the former Moon Jae-in administration, saying it put too little attention on the human rights issues in the North, promising more proactive efforts, also mentioning the establishment of a North Korean Human Rights Foundation. Salmon shared Kwon's view on the human rights um, on that the human rights are necessary for sustainable peace, stressing that South Korea and the UN have a common goal and responsibility in improving the human rights of North Koreans. Uh, Salmon arrived in South Korea earlier this week, uh, which is her first trip here since taking the post uh, following Thomas Ohea Quintana, and uh, she met with Foreign Minister Park Jin yesterday, speaking about. Um, Similar yeah, issues. Yeah, and I'm not surprised that uh, the current uh, unification minister kind of uh, criticized the former Moon Jae-in administration because it was one of those things where during the former Moon Jae-in administration, they're trying to push for better dialogue with North Korea. And what does North Korea not like talking about? Human rights issues, right? Uh, that's... And uh, it is unfortunate, but uh, the, the situation there, I'm sure, uh, is dire, especially because, uh, you know, the COVID-19 situation. They said they, you know, completely got rid of COVID-19 cases, but uh, I mean, who, who believes that, right? Uh, guys, let's go to Ukraine this time. It's another piece of news that we've been following very carefully because uh, it, it could potentially lead to a major catastrophe. IAEA inspectors having visited the Zaprosia nuclear power plant uh, despite shelling in the area. Uh, how long are they staying and what's the plan here? Right. So a group of IAEA inspectors, or the International Atomic Energy Agency, arrived at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine and started their three-day schedule. The chief of IAEA, Rafael Grossi, is the first head of a UN organization to visit a nuclear plant in an active war zone. This shows how much the international community is really paying close attention to what's going on at the nuclear plant in the war-ridden country. 
The inspection team had to overcome initial challenges in reaching the facility, which included a three hours delay to get around the continuous shelling nearby the plant. Grossi said that the plant and the physical integrity of the plant has been violated several times by chance and by deliberation. After Grossi's departure, the inspection team will remain on site until September 3rd to further carry out its mission. It is said that inspecting the Zaporizhia nuclear plant is the most dangerous mission of IAEA so far, as it is not only held by the Russians currently, but also because bombardment and shelling still break out. Parts of the facility are destroyed and there are high risks that radioactive substances can be leaked. In fact, the inspection team had to wait for a while even after arriving at the Ukrainian checkpoint, which is about 20 kilometers away from the plant, because of the shelling. Ukraine's President Zelensky had previously said that he wants the IAEA to help strike a deal that would demilitarize Zaporizhia rather than simply inspect the plant. Continued shelling in and around the plant has been raising fears about another nuclear accident. However, both sides have been accusing each other of nuclear terrorism, and Ukraine has been saying that Russia has been using the nuclear plant as a cover to protect its troops and launch further attacks. Yeah, simply put, like, I mean, no one is going to try to really attack a nuclear power plant, right? And so they're using that as like a base to kind of hide around and stuff. But this is a very interesting story because... Uh, Basically, I think what Ukraine wants out of this is for the IAEA to come in, and they're using the word demilitarize, right? But that's another word for basically get the Russian forces out of here. Uh, that's what Ukraine wants. And uh, Russia was saying like, well, yeah, we'll let IAEA in. Uh, we'll, we'll do everything in our part to have them inspect, but it's only going to take a day. Uh, whereas Ukraine's like, no, it's probably going to take uh, more than that. Uh, IAEA also, I believe... Uh, what is it? Uh, Grassi left. He, he's already left. But uh, there's about five IAEA members. Uh, inspectors are still in place until they said about Saturday, right? And so Russia is just kind of afraid that if they stay there longer, they're going to try to take this out and, you know, kick the Russian forces out. And then Ukraine is going to take this back. But it's also a very strategic place. And I mean, that power plant, I believe, is like the biggest in Europe or something like that. And also responsible for like 20% of all of Ukraine's energy. So a very strategic place. So we'll see what happens. Uh Going into other news in Ukraine, uh, something that I really hate to talk about, to be honest with you, uh, Ukrainian schools are reopening amid the ongoing war uh, because we heard of many stories with school building, buildings haven't been affected by the months of attacks from schools. Uh, kindergartens have been attacked. Uh, just other schools have been attacked as well. But seems like it's reopening. Whether or not this is going to be good or bad, we'll see. So uh, tell us about this situation. Right. So on Thursday, the new school year kicked off in Ukraine. So for many children, it was the first time they were back in their classrooms since uh, February, uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So more than a half year, half a year ago, uh, some half of schools reportedly went back to in-person classes. And uh, for instance, in the capital Kiev, some 130,000 students got ready to go to school, which involves a lot of reconstructions, installing windows, doors, uh, filling classrooms with chairs and desks. Seeing some of the pictures, it's really devastating uh, how bad some of these schools yeah. uh, have been uh, affected. Uh, let me just show you guys some of the pictures here. It's like 
really almost the entire building is destroyed. The whole, yeah, whole part mm. is just kind of yes. missing there. And, and oh my goodness. And they, of course, they had to just put like a book mm. uh, there just to see. Yeah, I mean, no, it's and gone. It's basically gone. There's no, there's no desk. There's no chalkboards, whatever you may say. Mm. Uh, it's all destroyed. Yeah. And uh, this picture is very interesting. This is how they have now installed chairs and desks. In basements. Actually, in the basement, yes. It looks, looks like really like a bunker. So according to the education officials in Ukraine, as of February 24th, when Russia's invasion began, around 2,300 education facilities have been bombarded or were damaged due to such invasions. 286 were completely destroyed. And uh, I also checked the number of actually children that have been killed. It's also uh, hundreds of children yeah. uh, that have been killed. Uh, so now those schools that are reopening, they have uh, installed these air raid shelters. Yeah, yeah. And some, as, I, as we see in the pictures, have even furniture the shelter with desks and chairs so that they can even continue with uh, holding the classes inside uh, the, uh, the shelter. I mean, like, if you're a parent, uh, would you feel safe to send your kids to school? Not really, yeah. I wouldn't. I, exactly. And, and, but at the same time, it's like, I, I, that's the, I think that's the other thing, that the war in Ukraine has uh, made us realize uh, how lucky we are to just be able to go to school when we want, right? And I'm sure all these kids, they want the education, they need this education, but uh, to risk your life to go to school, I mean, that's not something that kids should go. And that's the thing. And, and, and when do you know, because Russia is fully capable of attacking schools once again. Uh, and that's the unfortunate thing. And you were talking about children who died. I, I think they said something about amongst these civilians, like children and women and children, something like 900 women mm. and children died uh, since he started the war. So, But if they have these uh, shelters, it might, for parents, it might even feel more safe than have the children at home or... <laughs> yes, yes, but still, yeah. uh, even with the shelters, though, there's like bombardments, like, uh, like how can they go out? Mm. Um and I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's just no answers to this, to be honest. It's really unfor unfortunate with this uh, war. Uh, guys, let's move on to a different piece of news that we're going to be uh, following very closely in the next few days here. We're talking about uh, super strong typhoon uh, Hindamnor. Uh, this is uh, heading north from Taiwan, uh, bringing a lot of rain. And they're saying this is huge. Uh, let's talk about how this is going to be affecting us here in South Korea. Bogyan, give us the forecast. Sure. So according to the Korea Meteorological Administration, KMA, the 11th typhoon of this year, Hinamnor, started to head north from the Taiwanese waters. It's expected that the typhoon will bring more rain and strong wind to the southern part of South Korea until September 4th. The typhoon is forecasted to land on the southern coast of South Gyeongsang province during the morning of next Tuesday, according to the KMA. The typhoon is currently classified as super strong, the strongest out of its four-tier system, according to the agency. And the southeastern part of Jeju is currently seeing a precipitation level ranging between 10 to 20 millimeters per hour, with the level expected to reach up to between 100 and 250 millimeters between Friday and Sunday. Seoul and the surrounding area are expected to see between 20 and 70 millimeters of rain on Sunday. I'm just looking at the uh, the AccuWeather radar right now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's huge. 
I, this is, I mean, monstrous right now. Uh, I got different reports. I think the, the consensus from the, the KMA that it's, like, it's going to arrive in Jeju uh, Island by early Tuesday morning, like some of the U.S. outlets, so when they're with their radar, they're saying that uh, it might come sometime around like uh, Monday evening is what they're saying. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, we're watching it very carefully, especially with all of our listeners uh, over in Jeju as well. So keep in lock to Arirang Radio for mm-hmm. more. Trop- tropical storms can really change so fast, their roots mm-hmm. and their yeah, yeah, and their strength and everything. You're right, and and you know we've seen cases where it changed like root for the better, mm-hmm. where like it was supposed to hit us and it kind of went right. the other way, and or they were... dissipate all of a sudden. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so like we're kind of hoping with this one because I mean I I mean I mean I'm not a weather expert, but this looks like a really really big. Uh, typhoon that we're looking at something like they said up to like almost uh, 200 kilometers per hour with the, with the mm. wind speeds massive stuff here uh let's also talk COVID 19 updates um i mean the health experts did say it i mean they said uh, the peaks are going to come by uh the you know was it the the end of august mm-hmm. september now so uh, we're looking at korea posting the lowest number of cases in five weeks on this friday and starting tomorrow there's going to be some relaxed measures at airports, which is going to be always concerning, right? Mm. Uh, let's talk about this. Sure. So the number of daily infections this Friday has dropped to the 80,000 level. I mean, the high 80,000s because yeah. we've got 89,586 cases. But still not 100,000, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, around 8,000 fewer cases than yesterday. And if you compare the figure to last Friday, because you always have to look at the on-week uh, yeah, yeah. drop, uh, that's around... Um, 11,000 cases, fewer cases than a week ago. So that's quite a drop that we're seeing here. And uh, also, uh, as you said, SJ, that's the figure that's um, the lowest in five weeks. Yeah. And uh, also, um, we've been seeing this downward trend, especially compared to two weeks ago. Uh, we've got uh, around almost 50,000 fewer cases than now. So it really does seem like we have passed the peak. Uh, meanwhile, there were 317 infections from abroad, imported cases. So now let's do talk about what's going to change starting at yeah. midnight. So starting Saturday, uh, people that are entering the airport from abroad, they won't have to submit a negative test result of COVID-19. Like before arrival? Before arrival, okay. right. So usually we you had to uh, yeah, submit yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what they do still have to do is they have to get tested for uh, within a day after arrival uh, using the PCR test. But still... Yeah, SJ, as you said, it is concerning. <laughs> it is concerning. And I mean, we will have more people who would care less about their health and just come into the country. They might have fever, but yeah. yeah. No, no, that's the question that I have. It's yeah. just like, what's more important like, to me, right? I think it's more important that you get tested before you hop yeah. on that plane <laughs> rather than let's hop on the plane. <laughs> With hundreds of other people inside an enclosed area, mm. uh, I, I mean, not everyone is sitting next to each other, but you just never know, right? Mm. It's, it's an enclosed space, and uh, you land, and once you test positive, then you isolate. Or, I mean, which kind of ruins your trip, too, right? Let's say, let's say you're coming in for a vacation or something like that, and you only have like a week's stay, and then you get find out, you take a test, and you test positive, uh, and you basically have to spend your entire week uh, in isolation, but... Wouldn't it make more sense if you were to just kind of test before you come out? Mm. I think that's much more safer, but I guess they have got rid of this because it's kind of inconvenient for many. So they want to get rid of the inconvenience and then have more 
the t- maybe the tourism industry boost more. Pugia, <laughs> uh, what about yourself? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, getting rid of, I guess, uh, the PCR test before arrival, but getting it after is what you're supposed to do. I think there were many concerns, not concerns, complaints from travelers coming back after you know their travel and tours saying that they had to pay so much money to get those tests from wherever country they were mm-hmm. coming from so i think uh, those were one of the factors that the government you know took into account in getting rid of this mm-hmm. I, I just want to mention, but I'm against the. Yeah, so measure. you're always against everything, no, 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 everything no, 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 that eases restrictions. <laughs> <laughs> you're always against anything that we're come when it when we say it eases restrictions, okay. right? No, because it, could, it can be quite costly. If you are a family of four people and then you went to the U.S. and you want to come back, you have to pay I don't know like how much money. But uh, they did say that they needed they had to pay quite a lot. So I think that was also one of the factors that was making them to you know. Yeah, become I w- hesitant. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how much it is uh, to take a PCR test over in the United States. Any of our listeners who are over in the United States or, or, or different parts of the world, how much is it to ca- uh, take the PCR test in your respective countries? Because here in South Korea, I think depending on wherever, um, it, I don't know if PCR tests are free anymore. But the, our producer said there's a certain health. What is it uh, in Socho? Uh, what is it the, the health facility that where you can actually? Get, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what is that called? Okay. It's um, public health center. center. Yeah, yeah, public health mm-hmm. center. Uh, from what I understand, like you could get it for free in the Socho area if you ask for a PCR test. Yeah, I no. think you really have to know your information because uh, it's so different these days. Right. And also, when in regards to the self test, the the um, rapid antigen test even that costs like 50,000 won in some uh, hospitals mm. and then in others they just do it for free yeah and rapid antigen test um like i went to like a clinic to get those before um it's like 5,000 won i think it's it's cheaper for me but i'm, I'm not a big fan of the rapid antigen test mm. uh, alicia fisher says it makes travel uh makes traveling there easier by makes me concerned on getting on the plane. Yes, that's the big thing. It's cheaper for me to get the test here. Do we get tested at the airport? So she's saying that it's actually cheaper to get the PCR test in the United States, uh, right? Because to me, if I'm traveling, right, I don't want to deal with. I've already arrived in Korea. My goodness, I have so many things that I want to do in Korea. My mind doesn't want to be at, I have to get tested within the 24 hours, try to find out where I could get this PCR test and maybe just get tested, get everything done beforehand mm-hmm. and then just enjoy your vacation, right? And because, I, okay, and and she says, uh, for me, the test is free under my insurance. Oh, in so the States? In the state, that's interesting. No, because... Okay, my father, he went on a business trip to the U.S. and he had to pay quite a lot when he was coming back to take the PCR test. But he's test. not under the U.S. health insurance plan. No, no, though. of That's course not. Yeah. So if you're a foreigner and you have to take a PCR test, it's quite expensive, I think, abroad. Oh, we got some uh, interesting information from Don Pack. By the way, our, our, our regular listener, Don Pack, he works at the Incheon International Airport. Oh. Uh, he says, I actually took care of a person who doesn't have enough PCR document at the airport. Uh, many people had to go back to their country because they don't have the exact information. Maybe this is what they're trying to avoid, mm-hmm. right? Uh, trying to send back the people because they don't have the uh, documentation and things like that. Instead, all right, just get tested here in South Korea where it's, you know, there's no room for mistakes. Uh, maybe that's why. And again, trying to boost 
Uh, Something about a hundred dollars. Yeah, Alicia Fisher also says when my friend was heading back to Korea, it cost a hundred dollars for him to get tested here before heading back right. home. Right, well, that's what Korea. I heard. A hundred dollars. Hundred dollars, which is kind of equivalent to what it costs here in South Korea. It's it's a hundred twenty thousand Korean won uh, to get P, uh, PCR test at uh, one of the like hospitals. Mm. But I don't know about the airport. Like I don't know if you could get it at the airport or anything like that. Uh, Nora Dean says PCR test here in Vegas is two hundred dollars, one hundred ninety nine dollars. Gosh, they gave you a dollar discount. Just pay that $200 there. Yeah, it, it's really pricey. I don't know if it's because it's cheaper here in South Korea to get tested. Not everyone has nice in, uh, insurance like you, Alicia. Maybe that's the other thing. But again, I question because uh, also health experts are fearing that we might see a resurgence in cases by uh, October and November when our immunity mm. uh, is going to be waning, right? Uh, let's talk about another issue that we've been following very closely. And uh, we weren't going to actually talk about this until our writer was like, oh my goodness, look what happened to the current uh, exchange rate right now. South just, Korean... Um, just before that, yeah. there's yeah. another... Yes, there's just another news about the uh, new vaccine. Okay, you the have vaccines? Oh, okay, okay, yes, I didn't yes, see this. Yes. All right, right, so what's the latest on the, the, the vaccine stuff on the U.S.? Right, so the U.S. Centers for Disease Control signed off a new vaccine for the BA4 and BA5 variants. CDC announced that it approved the emergency use of the new Pfizer and Moderna vaccine to get ready for the fall and winter season. If fairly, those new vaccines can be used starting from next week. There were concerns that it's a little bit too soon to start inoculating the new vaccine to people. But CDC also had thoughts about also who to inoculate first yeah. and when. But then there were also opinions that uh, it's too late to wait until November. That's when they can get a little bit more data, clinical data. But uh, the dominant opinion was that we need to get ready. They need to get ready for the winter season, which is coming up. And um, so the data probably will be coming out in November. And they say if not, then there will be additional uh, fatalities and that 9,700 people can additionally die until November. Jesus, and so that's why that is a higher cost that we would have to pay if we don't start inoculating starting from next week. Yeah, they're saying as early as uh, Labor Day, right? There's Labor Day coming up in the United States. But uh, again, the, the, like as humans, right, we're very sensitive to uh, the data that comes out. And when you're telling me that, like, for example, like Pfizer only conducted their test on 400 people and then Moderna only tested mice, uh, are you going to be, you know, are you going to trust that is is this a big thing? We, we're getting a whole bunch of prices on the PCR test. <laughs> world. Polina Maldonado, by the way, happy birthday to you, Polina Maldonado. She's over in the UK. She says... Uh, uh, PCR, uh, they go for about 199 pounds to 250 pounds, which is really expensive. Mm. Uh, Benny over in the Philippines says uh, 2,800 Philippine pesos, which comes out to about uh, 67,000 Korean won, which is like $50, which is, I think that's, that's pretty cheap. I guess that's one place you want to go. Uh, speaking of all these numbers here, all the money numbers here, let's talk currency because the South Korean currency uh, sank to another low this Friday, uh, hitting... 
we keep mentioning this, the lowest level in more than 13 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's the latest figures? Yes, uh, the local currency closed at 1,362.61 against the dollar. That's down from 7.71 from the previous session's close. And this is the lowest figure since April 2009, when the one ended at 1,379.51 against the greenback. So during the financial crisis, uh, Friday's session opened at 1,342.1, up 4.41 from Thursday close and fell to 1,352.1 at uh, around 10, uh, 10.19 a.m. Actually, uh, exactly 10.19 a.m., I should say. And then before rebounding to 1,363.1 at one time. And uh, yeah, so this situation is continuing. I mean, just yesterday was also, uh, I think we had a record. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I said. I mean, yeah. we continue to say like the, the lowest level years, in 13 yeah. years, right? And I mean, again, 13 years ago was when I came to Korea. Actually, 13 years, exactly 13 years ago yesterday. And I remember it being mm. around this time. Like that's because I brought the dollar in, right? And right. so I remember how, uh, how much it was. But I mean, I've seen cases. I remember I coming to Korea for the first time since I immigrated to, uh, to the U.S. back in two, like 2002. I came to Korea, and I, at the time, like the exchange rate was like a thousand five hundred one for a, per dollar. Really? Yeah, which was pretty ridiculous. But I mean, we're talking about 2002, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure, like you know, wow. even before then, like during IMF, like it was mm-hmm. even worse. Um, but a lot of people are saying, how much higher? How much lower can it go? Well. It's really based on what the U.S. Fed is going to do, and the consensus is by this by the end of this month when they uh, going to do another rate hike of probably another 50 basis points, and the BOK is probably not going to be able to catch up. There's like three more rate hikes. Uh, it, it, a lot, some of the uh, the experts are saying that we might actually see that 1,500 mark uh, once again, which is terrible for the South Korean economy, right? <laughs> Oh, boy, the era that we live in right now. But, uh, guys, as always, thank you very much uh, for coming in here with your reports. Always stay safe. Have a great weekend. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Have Have a great great weekend. weekend. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.